I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey, this is Outside In. I'm your host, Nate Hedgie. And I am producer Taylor Quimby. And I want to start by telling you a quick story, Nate. Okay. So it takes place on Christmas Eve, 1968. Mm -hmm. We can presume that some people are wrapping presents, roasting chestnuts, uh, maybe watching some Christmas specials on their new color TVs. But um, over 220,000 miles away from all of that, three guys are jammed into a tiny metal spaceship. Uh, Apollo 8, this is Houston. Uh, when you go into the dark, uh, in about uh, seven or eight minutes, I have some... This is one of the uh, the missions that did not make the moon, right? Eight? Yeah, so this is this is before the moon landings. Uh, it's Frank Borman, James Lovell, and William Anders, and they're, they're the first people to leave Earth's orbit and circle the moon. Yeah, this is the Phantom Menace. This is uh, the prequels. <laughs> yeah. yeah. As usual in the real world, the flight plan looks a lot fuller than it did in uh, Florida. Roger, understand. They're orbiting the moon every two hours for just about a whole day. One of the astronauts, you know, he says it was really spectacular at first, but ultimately the moon is just desolate. Okay, uh, Houston, the moon is essentially gray. <laughs> no color. Looks like plaster of Paris. Or uh, sort of a grayish beach sand. And it actually got pretty boring. The amount of money we spent to send a guy up there to tell us 
that the moon looks gray. I know. It's pretty great. <laughs> but on their fourth trip around the moon, and the audio here is a little hard to hear, uh, one of them looks up and sees something kind of shocking. And I think it's the most excited you hear these astronauts on the entire trip. You know what it was? Oh, my God, look at that picture over there. There's the Earth coming up. Wow, is that pretty? It was the color blue. Hand me a roll of color quick, Oh, you? man, that's color. Great. Where is it? It's this blue, beautiful half-moon Earth rising over the horizon of the moon. This image sounds familiar to me, Taylor. I feel like I've seen this before. Perhaps one of these astronauts took a photo of it. (laughs) Like, I feel like that photograph is in every elementary classroom I went to as a kid. But but more more to the point, like, before this moment... And this might sound kind of silly. People did not actually have a good image of what the Earth looked like from space. Hmm. Of course. So, great story. Uh, Thank you. I love knowing about how that photo was taken, but like, why did you tell me? <laughs> what was the what was the point? Well, today we are opening the mailbag and answering listener questions on the subject of blue, a color that we associate with all of planet Earth, as I just heard, but one that I have recently discovered is relatively hard to find in nature. Hmm. As usual, thanks for sending us down all these interesting rabbit holes. And why don't we get started and open the outside inbox? Hi, this is Tisha calling from Toronto, Canada, and I'm calling to ask what's up with the color blue. I've heard that blue eyes aren't actually pigmented blue, and I've heard the same thing about blue morpho butterflies. Um, Are these statements true? And I've heard that blue is a rare color in nature, and is that true? Like, is blue actually rare? Um, Yeah, just basically, what is up with the color blue? Thank you. Thoughts, Nate? Well, I'm looking outside at a very blue sky, <laughs> but when I think like biologically, are there a lot of blue things besides some f- wildflowers and uh, blueberries and huckleberries? Are blueberries even really blue? No, they're more purpley. So I think to answer this question properly, you really have to start big and ask a very basic question, which is what is a color really, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you may remember this from you know grade school science. Uh, We've got a visible light spectrum that is broken up into a series of frequencies, Roy G. Biv, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. Red has lower energy. Violet is more intense, has a higher uh, energy level. Mm -hmm. And when something is pigmented, what is happening is that pigment is absorbing all of the other colors and reflecting the color that you see back at you. If you talk to a chemist or a physicist, they will not even call it blue. They always call it red absorbing. Not helpful physicists. <laughs> no. <laughs> Why do uh, scientists always come up with a more complicated <laughs> way? I know. So this is Kai Kuperschmidt. He is a science journalist and author of, get this, Blue in Search of Nature's Rarest Color. That's a great source. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Good job, Taylor. And for starters, Kai told me that in one sense, like you said, blue is super common, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, on a clear day, the sky looks blue. Sometimes the ocean looks blue. 
But all that said, uh, actually finding genuine blue pigments in nature is indeed pretty rare. If you think about the cut flowers that we all know and like, right, like roses, carnations, um, orchids, tulips, chrysanthemums, none of these exist naturally in blue. Oh, that's a good point. They're always just dyed. Yeah. Uh, and and to keep this analogy going, imagine you're looking through the vegetable aisle at the grocery store. And like you said, aside from blueberries, um, which aren't really that blue, there's yeah. not much there either. Um, you don't really have anything that's blue in the way that, that lemons are yellow or oranges are orange or, or peppers are red and green. It doesn't really exist um, in nature. I'm going through my mental grocery store right now trying to prove him wrong. And I can't. Are gushers... Do gushers uh, exist in the natural world? <laughs> yeah, you, you know, the, the gusher plant. Yeah. <laughs> so we could get into some pretty complex chemistry to explain why that is. And I'll be honest and mm -hmm. say that after talking to Kai, I'm not even sure I totally understand. But I did get the overarching idea, okay. which is that it is surprisingly hard for living things to build the sorts of molecules that absorb that low energy light from the low end of the visible spectrum and only reflect the blues. Hmm. He told me these blue pigment molecules, they tend to be bigger and more complicated. And, you know, there are some plants that can do it, like the cornflower, which have you ever seen a cornflower? I don't actually know what a cornflower is. Uh, Google it real quick. Okay. Cornflower. Oh, those are pretty. Yeah, very blue. Blue. That's very blue. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, there's a cost for any adaptations that require more energy. Um, and so clearly evolution has just steered a lot of plants towards easier to produce pigments. Mm -hmm. So that's why there's not that many. Animals, on the other hand, they are almost never making genuine blue pigment. So if you take the blue morpho, this gorgeous, almost fluorescent blue butterfly, and you were to zoom in really close to its body, what you'll see are these weird little structures that look like Christmas trees. Mm -hmm. um, and instead of absorbing all of the other light frequencies and bouncing back blue, they are using a sort of optical trick. So we call that structural colors because it's really the patterning on the, on the surface of these wings, on the surface of these scales that manipulates the light physically in a way that only the blue light is reflected. And from most angles, all you see is the blue light. So it's not even really blue pigment then? No. I think that's what I really love about this subject, um, is that color is like this blend of science, culture, and philosophy and perception. Mm -hmm. Like you can talk about why something is the color blue. You can talk about what the color blue symbolizes for a particular group of people. Mm -hmm. And then, and this is a real debate, you can ask. Are colors real? I mean, is color a real thing? Because the object, again, like the cornflower that I see out there, it looks blue to me, but that's because it absorbs red light. Like, in what yeah. sense is that blue? And also, it appears blue to me, but an animal that doesn't have the same receptors as us is going to see it in a different color. So, so can we really say that the color is real? Thus red absorbing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the physicists, though know-it-alls, may be right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So one part of that question, Nate, was about blue eyes, which, yeah. like the blue morpho butterfly wings we talked about, are actually kind of an optical illusion. Um, but, Nate, you looked into another question we got about eyes from Ricardo on Instagram, who wants to know, if blue eyes are recessive, will they disappear completely in the future? 
Before we answer that, Taylor, I can't remember. Do you have blue eyes? You don't know the color of my eyes. We, we look at each other on Zoom every day. <laughs> I know, I know. They're hazel. Yeah, they're greenishy. Okay, so I have I have boring brown eyes, and I say boring because I'm like eighty percent of the world. I think brown eyes are beautiful, so just don't sell yourself short. I didn't say they weren't beautiful; just that they're kind of boring. You know, everybody's got them. Um, but folks with blue eyes, they make up only eight percent of the world population, and it's actually a little bit more in the U.S. About a quarter of the population here, but. Get this, Taylor. Back in the 1900s, half of all Americans had blue eyes. What? Yeah, yeah. Number obviously is dwindling, but will it disappear? Probably not. So the reason blue eyes are rare is because they're a recessive trait, right? Like both parents have to carry the blue-eyed gene for their kids to have blue eyes. Uh And back in the 1900s, when half of all Americans had blue eyes... We tended to marry within our own ethnic groups more. So blue-eyed people predominantly come from Northern Europe and Northern Europeans. We're marrying Northern Europeans. But nowadays, we pick partners for a whole lot of different reasons. Like, I'm Hungarian. My wife is Greek. I did not marry her for her Hispanicopita, as delicious as it is. Um, So you have blue-eyed people marrying brown-eyed people. And because brown eyes are a dominant gene, you get more brown eyes. But but here's the thing, Taylor. Brown-eyed people... They can still carry a recessive blue-eyed gene, so there is always a chance that your kid could have blue eyes. So, might dwindle, but it's not going to disappear. Gosh. I wonder if, I just think about, like, the science that would have been done then and whether or not we would have, like, biased information in the first place. You know, like, we were only surveying white folks. That's a great point. The survey could be flawed. A lot more people had blue eyes than they do now. We could say that, but I think you're probably right. And yet it's, it says something about like the speed of which humans as a, as a species can sort of physically shift in different directions over what is mm-hmm. a super short period of time. Well, it's interesting, too, because there's research out there that suggests that the blue eyed gene, it came from a single ancestor like way, way back in, I think, Central Asia. And so not even that way, way back, but like 10,000 years ago, 8,000 years ago. That person must have blown minds. There must have been like a whole mythology around the first person to have blue eyes. Okay, so before we get to our next question, two things. First... We are in the middle of a fundraiser right now. Uh, And when you, dear listeners, support the show, your gift will be matched dollar for dollar. Yeah, so what that means is if you give 10 bucks a month, we'll wind up getting $20, which will help us make the show, but we'll also thank you by sending you an outside-in hat and a pair of, honestly, the comfiest wool socks I have ever put on my feet from Minus 33. Though you don't get the ones that I put on my feet. Trust me, you get new new ones. You don't get mine. (laughs) Nate's used socks. (laughs) So check out the deets in the show notes, and thank you so much. And thing number two, our theme for the next Outside Inbox questions is a favorite of mine from my days reading comic books as a kid, and it is, what if? Like, what if dinosaurs were still alive today? Or what if humans were cold-blooded? What if we ran out of helium? No more balloons. Mm. We've already got a lot of great questions, but we haven't picked our next set, so please send them our way via voice memo or email to outsideinradio.org.
Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Welcome back. This is Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie, here with Taylor Quimby. Yay. And we've got our blue suede shoes on for the day as we tackle our questions about the color, the vibe, the feeling that is blue. And we're switching gears for this next question, which was answered by producer Felix Poon. It is not so much about the color blue, or even the vibe, for that matter, but it is about something that we associate with the color blue, which is water. We got a question from Todd in Buffalo, New York, and Todd works on a boat on Lake Erie. And we have a water intake facility that takes in hundreds of millions of gallons of water a day through a 12-foot wide pipe. And I just don't understand how I built that. Um, If you can help me out, how do we build things underwater? What are your thoughts? How do you think they build things underwater? I think that they build it outside of the water. And then, well, I guess they probably have like divers that like lead it down and they think the divers just like smash it into wherever it needs to go. It's not a bad guess. Okay. I spoke to Justin Alves. Justin's a pile driver, and he builds offshore wind turbines. In fact, he was at work on a ship just off the coast of Halifax, Canada, when I called him. Oh, cool. And Justin says diving is part of some types of underwater construction, but that's not the case for most projects, and probably not the case with this underwater pipe either. I would imagine they built a cofferdam. You, you know, you would barrier that off, and you would be able to do your work in that area. Barrier it off? Like they would create like a dam just like where it like moves the water away? Yeah, pretty much. Humans have been using cofferdams for literally thousands of years. They could be as simple as building walls out of dirt if it's a shallow project. But for deeper projects, they use different materials, like these tall sheets of steel that get pounded down into the ground underwater and linked together, kind of like Legos. Once the area is totally sectioned off and the water's drained out, then they get to work. Hmm. So that's probably how this pipe got put in under Lake Erie. But the work Justin's doing, he doesn't need to move water out of the way. He's building support structures for things like piers and wharfs, bridges, and offshore wind turbines. And these foundations are made from piles, basically these giant poles or tubes made of steel or concrete that go deep into the ground. The ones used for wind turbines are called monopiles. 
they start with a monopile, they put that in the ground, hammer it in the ground, and then they put what's called the transition piece on top of that. I mean, these things are basically manufactured onshore. Yeah. And then they bring them out on these barges, and the barges have these giant massive cranes. The capacity of this crane for the vessel that I'm on is 5,000 tons. Wow. Yeah, Justin's job as a pile driver is actually a lot of rigging, like tying and hooking up monopiles. So then the crane picks it up, puts it in the water, puts it in place, and then a big hydraulic hammer keeps hitting the top again and again, like thousands of times, driving it down into the ocean floor. So there's no like divers or anything else like that? Like, is he ever diving? Yeah, no, they they don't need to do that because they have robots with cameras that can see underwater. They use what's called ROV, which is remote operated vehicles. They kind of just navigate with controls. Honestly, it's like playing a video game for these guys. I should have thought about drones, the fact that they have like these underwater drone robots that would do all the work of divers these days. Yeah, exactly. Lots safer. You know what's weird, Nate? Hmm. Uh, ever since Felix originally answered this question about building things underwater, I've been getting Instagram reels mm-hmm. where people are like building things underwater in this like hmm. cool boat that is like a bell that suction cups over the ground. But I don't, it's, it's just brought back that whole thing of like, is my phone listening to my edits with you guys? <laughs> I've been thinking about this a lot more lately. Okay, so did you search anything when you were editing Felix's script? Oh, undoubtedly. Okay. I mean, I that's the nature of editing is I was definitely looking up pictures of stuff that he was talking about and yeah. That's that's what it is. It's getting really good. It's kind of frightening. All right. Well, creepy uh, aside, uh we have another uh question from a listener that you answered. Um this one is kind of a classic, I think. Mm-hmm. Why is this guy blue? Yes, it's a great question. I have wondered the same thing. And so I'm going to make this quick. We can blame the sun, Taylor. (laughs) Stupid sun. Sunlight, it looks white, right? Uh But it's actually all the colors of the rainbow. That's what makes up white. And when it hits the molecules of our atmosphere, all those colors scatter, like when light hits a prism. And the blue light waves happen to be scattered more because their wavelengths are shorter. So that's why the sky looks blue. Don't ask me, by the way, to explain it any deeper than that because everything I could find (laughs) online, the thing I always was like, Why, if the wavelengths are shorter, does it scatter more? I don't understand that. But I was literally looking at like National Geographic kids and they were like, well, it's because the wavelengths are shorter, children. And I was like, okay, I guess that's something I should understand. It's one of those things where it's like, I kind of knew that answer and yet it doesn't, it's not satisfying in a way because... No, it's not. um, Because it's like a layer of physics that you can't actually see with your eyeballs. And so it's kind of like you just have to trust it. It's very physicky. It's not one of my strong points. Yeah, Google it next time, people. (laughs) Yeah, come on. You guys ever heard of Google? (laughs) Yeah, just kidding. No, we want your questions. Yeah, we Um, do. Okay, Uh, we have got uh, one more. Okay. And I got to say I'm pretty excited for this one, which was submitted by Calvin from Des Moines, Iowa. I am interested in the etymology. So what is the history of the word blue? And is the idea of the color consistent throughout history and in different cultures. Anyway, thanks. Love the pod. That's a very heady question. I've never really thought about 
any colors that way. Yeah. And I, I love etymology questions, but to your point, mm-hmm. they are heady because language is so fluid and messy yeah. that it's really hard to wrap uh, an answer up in a nice, neat little bow. Yeah. That being said, I will do what I can. Okay. The English word blue is Germanic in origin. It has roots mm-hmm. in Old French and Old Norse. Hmm. And the various words that it uh, translated to back when it was a slightly different word were things like sky-colored or lead-colored. Both things that we see are blue. Well, actually, I've never known that lead was blue. I know the sky's blue. I thought lead was just, I don't know what color lead is. Kind of grayish. Yeah. But there's like a bluish tint. Slady. And I think that's interesting because there's a lot of other languages that have different roots for the color blue. And if you go back, um, you'll you'll often find them connecting etymologically with words for other colors. Hmm. So a lot of Indo-European languages have some word for the color of the sea that's a mix of green, blue, and gray. Accurate. Because the sea isn't just like one color. It's, you know, kind of changing and shifting. Right. And all this reminds me... Um, well, do, do you know which came first, uh, Nate, the color orange or the fruit orange? I'm going to say that the f- fruit orange came first. You are correct. And, you know, one way to think about it is like cavemen weren't naming colors just for funsies. Yeah. Like historically, <laughs> humans have tied colors to objects that have that color. Right. Um, so in most languages, if you go back, the first colors to get a name are black and white or uh, light and dark. You know, think about it that way. Um, and partially because there are so few things in nature aside from the sky that are a true blue the way that a lemon is yellow or an orange is orange, blue is typically the last color to get a name at all. In fact, there's still a few, quite a few languages in the world where green, blue are the same word, where there's just one word for those two colors. Huh. This again is science journalist and our resident blue expert for today, Kai Kuferschmidt. There's different arguments to why that might be, but one argument has been that you really only need a word for a color once you're able to separate that color from an object. Oh, so if the only thing that's blue in your world is the sky, you're not you're just going to be like, oh, that looks sky colored. Yeah, basically, like until you can take the pigment out of that thing and dye other things with it, the color isn't itself nameable. It's like it's not its own quality. Right. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's why we call things orange. (laughs) So Calvin also asked if the idea of the color blue is consistent across cultures. And I'd say the answer is a pretty resounding no. Mm -hmm. Um, It's been used to signify royalty. But then also you've got like blue collar workers. Baby blue is a color of innocence, but it can also be used to mean something obscene or pornographic. If you've ever heard of blue laws or blue movies. Yes. That's what that means. Mm -hmm. Uh, The comedian Hannah Gadsby has a, a really good stand-up bit about these kinds of contradictions. If you're feeling blue, you're sad. But optimism, blue skies ahead. <laughs> a blueprint is a plan, but if something happens that's not on the plan, where does that come from? Out of the blue! <laughs> oh. And again, I think it's partly because blue doesn't have these very fixed objects attached to it, like, say, red and blood, and... Um, I think it's it's kind of more open to different associations. Again, because there's not so many things in the real world that are the color blue. Like red, as he as he mentioned, that is the color of blood, which love, is fire, passion, love, passion, heart. fire. Yeah, exactly. Got a lot of red in this world. And color definitely influences human behavior, right? So yeah. 
One little example from the 90s was this study that suggested placebo pills that were meant to act as stimulants. Placebo being, you know, it's like a sugar pill, but you're pretending it's a stimulant. They were more effective if they were a warm color like red or orange. Yes. uh, More effective as depressants if they were a cool color like blue. But the way that we feel about colors, why we prefer some over others, it does seem to have to do with a big mix of factors. And and maybe the most important one is the cultures we grow up in and the associations that we build with them over time. So, you know, you could take the color brown and associate it with chocolate or poop. And you might feel very, very differently (laughs) about it depending on where your mind goes, you know? That's very true. Or if you see chocolate and you think, oh, my God, I think that's poop. Then you're like, oh, it's chocolate. Uh, it's like those those horrible baby showers where they, they put, like, chocolate, melted chocolate in a diaper. Oh, I didn't know they did that. That's gross. Oh, it's it's terrible thing. Yeah. That's disgusting. Yeah. Yuck. Ew. <laughs> Bad idea, everyone. Stop doing that. Taylor, I'm, I'm blue that this episode is over. Oh, nice. Well done. <laughs> pun. <laughs> I didn't write that pun. You just did that all by yourself. I made that one it. up. I, I was telling Justine I'm, I'm getting into dad age at, at 36, 37, and I'm beginning to warm up to puns. I feel like it just comes naturally with this age. Good. Anyways, thanks for listening. If you want to send us a question on the theme of what if, send us a voice memo or email us at outsideinradio.org. This episode was produced by Taylor Quimby, Felix Poon, and me, Nate Hedgie. It was mixed by Taylor and Felix, edited by Taylor with help from Rebecca Lavoie, and our team also includes Justine Paradise. Rebecca Lavoie is NHPR's director of on-demand audio, music by Blue Dot Sessions. Outside In is a production of NHPR. Or should we call them Red Absorbing Dot Sessions? <laughs> person or a bedtime procrastinator everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style and you'll find the best mattress for you at ashley the new temper adapt collection at ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body conforming technology making every sleep tailored to be your best the collection also features cool to the touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners pets or kids shop the all-new temper adapt collection at ashley in store or online at ashley.com ashley for the love of home you can host the best backyard barbecue when you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.